Hey, friendly reminder, this podcast is not for kids or people who have a stick up their ass. Friday, 5.58 p.m. I'm sleeping with my best friend's husband. I think my uncle killed someone in I his think suicide. I am I a sugar baby. Mom addicted to Adderall. I think I my sister is my actually my uncle's kid. My What's your secret? Welcome back to another week of Beyond the Secret. My name is Ace Fanning, and I am back. Sooner than you probably anticipated. Maybe you literally don't give a shit and didn't give any thought to how long I would be gone between episodes. But either way, I am here and with a brand new secret. Two new secrets, actually, because if you subscribe to Patreon, you're getting a new episode tonight as well. And while these two stories are not related, they are both stories that tell two different tales of drug addiction. So if you want to hear the counterpart to this story or any of the other 100-plus episodes and bonuses from the backlog of Beyond the Secrets Patreon account, join today for just $10 a month. And if you have a secret you would like to share on the podcast, I'm always open to hearing your stories. Just shoot me over an email to beyondthesecretpodcast at gmail.com. Now, before we get into this story, I want to give you a statistic about drug addiction. According to addictioncenter.com, as of 2017, it was estimated that almost 21 million Americans have at least one addiction to either drugs or alcohol. And I'm absolutely not a doctor, or a scientist, or a researcher. But I can't help but think, especially over the course of the past 18 months, that more and more people have found themselves struggling with addiction. I think that drugs can seem like a really quick way to try and silence your anxiety or to cope with your depression. But drugs are a very slippery slope for a lot of people. Personally speaking, I, I've never consumed alcohol, and I had never tried drugs until a friend told me how much marijuana helped them with their anxiety. And then in six months' time, I went from having never tried it to smoking it several times a day every single day. Obviously, marijuana is a lot different than heroin, and I cannot relate to any of the story that you're about to hear, but when people wonder why I've never tried alcohol, it's because I know addiction lives within me, and I let that guard down with weed, and and very quickly, I proved to myself what I had always known. You know, I I became obese because of my addiction to food. And on the same hand, I have lost nearly 100 pounds because of my addictive behavior. Drugs are addictive. We know that. But so are feelings. The feeling of being high is addictive. 
And we, as human beings, can find ourselves addicted to feelings or substances without even realizing it. And by the time we do realize it, we are living a life like the one you're about to hear. This month's secret, heroin, part one. Tell me about yourself. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. I have a younger brother and two younger sisters. I am currently in school. It took me a really long time to get there, but I am trudging forward. And today I do things for myself where I find my connection to my higher power and my spirituality. And I am a reliable friend and I had to learn all of that process as an adult. Talk to me about your childhood and what your childhood looked like. So for me, and of course, this is just from my perspective, I know that other people can see it differently, especially like other family members. But from my perspective, I was born feeling like I never really fit in. I was hyper focused on creating these relationships with people in my life, even from an early age. And I didn't really know how to connect with people. So it was really difficult for me to feel like I belonged anywhere. I struggled with anxiety as a young child. I believe I was two years old when I started pulling my hair out. And I had all these like feelings that were swirling inside of me that I didn't know how to control. And the only way that I knew how to control that feeling was by pulling my hair out. And that progressed until I was in. I mean, just up until a couple of years ago, and I did some therapy behind it, but I always just felt like I didn't belong and that there was like something wrong with me that made me feel like people didn't want to be my friend or that I felt left out. I remember when I was like a little kid and I would go over to people's houses, like my friend's houses to have dinner and I would sit down and there would be their whole family gathered around the table and they would be asking their kids like what they learned at school, how their day was, uh, super involved. And I just didn't really have that home life. And I remember like sitting there and just like fantasizing what that would have been like for me. And my perspective growing up was definitely difficult. I have my parents struggle with alcoholism and mental health issues. And so I know now, but at that time, they were doing the best that they could with what they had and what they learned growing up as well. So I can't, I can't say that I had this like picture perfect childhood. There was a lot of trauma that I experienced. And I think that it kind of shaped me into trying to find something to make me feel like I fit in. How would you describe the relationship between you and your parents? It's a weird relationship. You know, I was the oldest and my parents had divorced when I was 12 years old. And I felt like I had to assume that parental role because my parents were both going through their own things. And there were still three 
kids in the house. So I felt like I took a lot of responsibility on my shoulders for that. And then I also just didn't know how to process it. And so the relationship that I had with my parents was very, very strained. Talk to me about the girl that you were at 12 years old and with your parents' divorce going on, where you found yourself. So my parents' divorce was really traumatizing. And I remember it was uh, Christmas morning and it was going to be the last Christmas that we spent together as a family before my parents had divorced. And I remember it just like feeling very forced. And then my mom, like two days later, my mom had told us that my dad was going to be moving out. And I couldn't really comprehend what was going on. I just remember like what I felt and I placed so much blame on myself. Like it was my fault that my parents weren't going to stay together. And, you know, I was a bad kid and I was struggling with all of these things like behaving and I was constantly pulling my hair out. I had bald spots everywhere and I was just like, they just don't want to deal with this anymore. It's my fault that they are getting a divorce. And then shortly after that, my mom had told me that she was in a relationship with another woman and that that other woman was going to be moving into her house. And that kind of just like offset everything. I was like feeling these really big emotions that I didn't know how to cope with. And so I feel like the road that started my path through addiction and into recovery started with these like really big feelings and emotions that I didn't know how to cope with. And the first thing that I knew how to do was to begin cutting myself. And I remember the first time that I ever cut myself and just the relief that I felt. It was like the pain had taken everything away and I didn't have to deal with my home life. I felt like I I just had this release and I was able to like cope with everything that was going on. And so I engaged in self-injurious behavior and it just made me feel better. It was such a hard, it was like, as soon as I cut myself, all of those big emotions like went leaking out of me and I didn't have to like deal with anything. And it was like alleviating for me in that moment because I was 12 years old and I had no idea how to deal with like the sadness and the anxiety and feeling all of the guilt, even though it didn't involve me whatsoever. And then my mom telling me that she was in a relationship with another woman. And at that time, I didn't understand what that meant. And, you know, you're, you're going through puberty, you're trying to like build all of these friendships. And I just felt like it was a really, really difficult time in my life. And I just needed something to make me feel better. I want to ask you about something because it's interesting hearing you say how you took everything on and thought you felt like your parents' divorce was your fault. And you being the oldest, I'm the youngest in my family. And it's interesting how different i feel like our perspective would be on that situation i feel like i would look at that from the perspective of i can't believe they're doing this to me i would never take it on as like this is my fault do you feel like for your entire life you've had to assume this role of taking on responsibility for everything around you yeah and That has also shaped me into being a people pleaser and a caretaker. 
um, which really took away from me developing my own identity and personality in my life. And I think that it really played a huge part in me feeling like I was lost throughout my life and that I just didn't know who I was and I didn't know where I belonged. And, you know, my parents were, they were going through their own things that they also didn't know how to cope with. So it was just this like trickle down system of nobody taking care of each other or taking care of themselves. And so to watch my family kind of just like implode, I felt like I, I needed to save it and I didn't know how I was going to save it. So it was like that reoccurring like thought where I just like couldn't fall asleep at night and I felt like my life was falling apart and it really made me feel like I just had nowhere that I belonged in life. Do you feel like when all of this was going on, your parents noticed what you were going through and chose to focus on themselves? Or do you feel like they just couldn't even see what you were going through because of their own issues? So right after my parents divorced, um, they both slipped into their own addictions. And I think that they were so wrapped up in their feelings of sadness and using substances to numb what they were going through that it was hard for them to pay attention to what any of their children were feeling. When I think back to that time, I remember just always being like, okay, I have to do this in order to get attention. And it was like getting straight A's and it was like writing papers. It was doing really well in sports. Like I was trying to do everything externally that I could get my parents, like do it well enough so that my parents would notice me. That's what I felt like. And it was just this like constant feeling of not being good enough for them and that they didn't notice anything that I was doing or this effort that I was trying to put in. And so it kind of just led me down this like dark path. I remember after my parents divorced, my mom kind of like slipped into this role of wanting to be like the cool mom. And I was 12 years old. And that was the first time that I ever was able to drink alcohol. I remember like taking sips of it throughout, you know, like your dad would be having a beer and he would just be like, you would ask to take a sip and they'd give you a sip. And this was like the first time that I ever had like a bottle of alcohol to myself. And it was, I had a couple of friends over, we were 12 years old. And I remember it was a pint of Bacardi 151 rum. And we had bought a can of Coca-Cola as a chaser. And I remember the very first time that I ever had my first like real drink of alcohol as I was going through this like loss of identity, these big emotions that I didn't know how to deal with. My family in my eyes was falling apart and I needed to save it. And nothing that I was doing was ever good enough. And I remember taking that first drink and just feeling numb. I didn't feel like I wasn't good enough. All of those feelings like left me and the only thing that I could focus on was how good alcohol made me feel and I was 12 years old you know that's what the crazy part of it is and that was kind of just like where everything started to progress I remember around that time that was also when I started smoking 
cigarettes and the first time that I had tried marijuana, it was like off to the races. It was like, as soon as I found some sort of substance, it didn't matter what it was. Like I would have tried anything at that point just to not have to feel what I was going through. I did not want to experience all of the things that were swirling inside of me. And every time that I drink alcohol from that point on, I would just not feel anything. I would be completely belligerent. I didn't know how to handle my alcohol. And I just drank as much as I possibly could at 12 years old. I was stealing alcohol from the liquor cabinets and filling them up with water. I was going to parties uh, with people that were way older than I was that were able to get alcohol just so that I could continue this substance at that time. Like I needed to have it and I felt like I needed to have it because it made me feel like I was normal. Did you at all have a moment of saying to yourself when, when you were making these choices to drink and smoke and party, did you ever have this moment with yourself where you said, you know, I see my parents doing this and I see the effect that it has on them. Do I want to go down that same path? I never even had that thought process. I I remember my dad being very aggressive when he would drink and that part of it scared me. But there was never a moment where I was like, maybe I shouldn't do this. And I knew that like my entire family had struggled with addiction. Uh, My mom is adopted, so she doesn't really know her side of the family, but I know for sure that her side of the family struggles with addiction. And then also my dad's side of the family struggled with alcoholism and addiction. And so like, I already had this understanding that it was something that ran in our family, but I couldn't stop chasing that feeling, the feeling of like being on top of the world, being numb and not having to face what I was going through at home. And it kind of just like took off from there. It was like, I, I started to experiment with a bunch of different substances. It progressed very, very quickly. I just had no desire to want to stop. I wanted to feel like I belong somewhere. And I know that the people that I was using substances with at that point in time, I felt like I belonged with them because we all kind of like built this understanding and relationship with each other that we were all kind of like going through these situations and we didn't feel like we were good enough, but we felt good enough together when we were using. So it was a very like toxic, it was very toxic relationships that I had with the people that I was using. And it was like this trauma bonds that we had created so that we could kind of just face everything that we were going through together, but also while we were drunk or high. What I think is so interesting about you and this story is that I met you in high school and you became one of my very close friends. And while I knew that you were struggling, because I don't think people you know, I've never thought that people would drink and do drugs just for fun. I feel like there was always kind of something there to band-aid. 
but you were always so incredibly sweet and nice and caring. And it's crazy because I think a lot of people, when they are struggling, when they're going through a hard time, they become very hardened and closed off to people and they they can't give to anyone else because they can barely give to themselves. And it's interesting now to hear just what you were going through during that time. You know, it's, I don't feel like I ever really lost that part of me when I was using, because as it started to progress, so it was, you know, throughout high school by two, 2008, I was, you know, 2007, I was 17 years old. And that was when I had a complete, like full addiction to opiates. I remember graduating and just being completely addicted to prescription painkillers. And I feel like I never lost that part of me. I was just trying to kill the part of me that felt any sort of like emotion or sadness because throughout my addiction, I still tried to take care of people. I tried to take care of my dad. I tried to take care of my boyfriends. I really focused on continuing to be caring. And I know sometimes my substance abuse got in the way of that and I wasn't like fully there, but I think that I just had this like need and want to like have people in my life and have a place where I felt like I belonged, but I just like could not stop using drugs. I just couldn't. There was like not even one part of me that even wanted to stop using drugs because it made me feel so numb. I didn't experience sadness. I didn't experience any sort of this, like this feeling of me feeling like I wasn't worthy. I did not experience when I was high. But as soon as I would come down was when those emotions would come rushing in all over again. And it would be this like voice in the back of your head just telling you that you are not worth being sober. You're not worth having a life. You're not worth all of these things. And then it's like this voice that also tells you like, look at everybody else. Look at how well everybody else is doing. This is going to be the rest of your life. Better get used to it kind of thing. And so it wasn't only like something that I felt throughout childhood, but it was something that this internal voice started to tell me over and over and over again throughout my adulthood as well. So it was something that was like planted in me when I was young and I was going through all of these traumatic experiences and it became this like repeating tape in the back of my head. You are not worthy. You are not loved. I couldn't turn it off. There was no way that I could turn it off unless I got high. That was the only way that I could turn off that that voice in the back of my head. I want to ask this, and I don't even know if this is going to make sense, but is there ever a point when you're struggling with addiction where you realize, like, at one point you start using alcohol and drugs to numb the pain from a situation? So in your case, your home life, your family, does there come a point when you're in addiction where you realize that you're no longer numbing the things that happen to you, but now you're, I almost kind of want to think like, yeah, like you're addicted. And now the problem that you're running from 
is the problem that you're using to cope like this awful cycle that happens yes so the first time that i ever went to detox was in 2012. i had this plan to get sober and at that time i was selling heroin i was i graduated to heroin from opiates because it was so much more cost effective opiates were very difficult to get and heroin was just easier it was cheaper so at that point i was using heroin and xanax so i was selling heroin i was working a full-time job and i was going to college and i was like able to juggle all of it and i had this like plan that i was going to go to detox i was going to get sober and i was going to continue selling heroin i just wasn't going to use it and i had this like delusion in my head that i could just not use the heroin and I could just sell it and make a lot of money and then, you know, put myself through school. And I really thought at that point in time that I wasn't an addict. It took me a really long time to figure out that I, that I was an addict. I was a full blown addict. And after I had gotten out of that detox and that was like the first time that I ever really felt withdrawal symptoms from opiates and you feel like you're gonna die you think you're gonna die you're not gonna die but you're super uncomfortable you're sweating you have restless legs you can't stop moving you have these goosebumps all the time you just are constantly cold you're constantly hot and it switches like a switch and you know you're withdrawing for at least seven days and then you can have withdrawals even longer than that and i remember getting out of the detox and I seriously thought that I could go home and just continue selling heroin at that point. And I relapsed the day that I got out. The day that my dad picked me up, I went home and I got high and I didn't think anything of it. Cause I don't think that like my heart was in it. But after 2012, I went to my very first treatment center in 2014. And I'm not the only one that was struggling with addiction at that time in my family. My brother also was too. And so we went to treatment together. We were using together. We went to treatment together in 2014. And that was like when I had my first taste of sobriety. I had been there for six months. And I think that that was when I had the realization that I was an addict. And I got to the point where I was I was using to numb everything. But it goes so much further past that because you have to use in order to feel normal and not get sick. So in that time, I had done therapy. I had gotten a sponsor. I had been going. That was my first introduction to AA meetings. And I had worked the steps. And then I moved back down to Phoenix. And I thought to myself, like, I could just slip back into my old life just without the drugs and without the selling. So I tried to go back to school. I got a job at the same place that I had been working at for years. So it was like the same routine, but the only thing that was missing were the drugs. And I remember my first sponsor told me, put every single ounce of energy and heart that you put into getting high into getting sober and give it one year do everything that you're supposed to do. And if in that first year you still feel like 
drinking or getting high, drugs and alcohol are always going to be there. They're not going to go anywhere. And I remember I had just picked up a year sober and then I relapsed. And I was like so depressed at that point. And I think that that was something that was really big that led me back to relapsing because I moved to like my hometown, but everybody had moved on with their lives. I was struggling with addiction. I had just gotten out of treatment and I was just kind of like stuck. You know, I was 24 years old. I went home and like nothing was what I had expected it to be or what I fantasized it to be. I think that 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 point, I always think to myself, like having any sort of sobriety and then going back out and drinking or using drugs, you have this like huge realization that it's like way worse than it ever was before you ever got sober. So like sobriety gives you this like outlook on life that things are like positive and you're on like this pink cloud because everything is working out and you're getting your feelings and your emotions back and you can see color like it's the weirdest thing and then you know you kind of drop off of that pink cloud and then you end up relapsing and you didn't realize like how bad it was and that was probably the worst part of my life when I was in active addiction was uh, when I relapsed in 2015 in 2015 I had met a man up here and he was also in the program and we started seeing each other and it was somebody that had introduced me to methamphetamines for the first time and I thought to myself you know I heroin is my drug of choice I've never really done meth I had done cocaine in the past it was you know I could handle it it was fine and I remember doing methamphetamines for the first time and I don't think that I have ever lost myself so much. And shortly after that, I started doing heroin as well. And that was like the lowest point of my life I feel like I have ever been in. I remember not wanting to get high anymore because I I had a year sober and I knew what, what sobriety could bring me. I had friendships. I was starting to build relationships with my family. I had burned a lot of bridges and I was creating relationships with them again. And I remember just like sitting in a Motel 6 bathroom and I just did not want to get high. I just didn't want to, but I had to because I was so, I was withdrawing, I was sick. And I remember just like looking up in this Motel 6 bathroom and I just started with like foxhole prayers. And I'm just like, please, just let this shot kill me. Like, please. I was so defeated and I did not know who I was at all. And I was like, I, I prayed every single night that I would overdose. And then I just wouldn't wake up the next morning. I was in such a deep, dark place at that point in my life. You know, I, I tried to hang myself in the bathroom because I was causing so much harm to like my family. I was causing so much harm to the people that loved me and like I could not stop causing harm to myself. I couldn't stop getting high and I just wanted I had this like fantasy that somebody was just going to like ride in on their white horse and rescue me. And that is never the case with addiction because what I've learned is that people do not get sober until they are ready to get sober and I think that at that point in my life I was 
so ready to get sober, but I was also so scared to get sober because I had already thrown away such a huge portion of my life. Do you feel like with getting sober, there is this extra pressure put on you because of the fact that when you get sober, it's important to let the people around you know that you're sober and to let kind of people in on that journey with you. And then there's, you know, one year of sobriety is huge. And then there's people celebrating. And then do you feel like there is this letdown, not only to yourself, but to the people who were cheering you on and who were excited for you? Oh my God, more than ever. So in 2000, and so I had relapsed in 2015 and then in 2016. So during that time from 2015 to 2016, I had relapsed and everybody in the recovery community, all these people that I had built relationships with had found out that I relapsed. So I, you know, those, those people are also trying to take care of themselves and their sobriety and they do not want to be around somebody that is actively drinking and using. It is just not healthy for them. And at that, in that moment, I didn't understand it. I was like, you're abandoning me. You're not doing anything that the 12 step program says to do. And so I really like adopted this like victim role. It took a while for my family to know that I had relapsed. I was really good at hiding it from them. And then, so in 2015, I had relapsed. And once I started doing methamphetamines, I just couldn't control it anymore. I had no control. I felt like I never had any control, but in my mind, in my delusional mind, I thought that I had control when I was doing just heroin and sometimes Xanax, that was when I felt like I had the most control. As soon as I introduced methamphetamines, and that was the year that I also started shooting up for the first time, I completely lost control of my addiction. I ended up losing my job. I couldn't maintain any relationships in my life. I was unreliable. I had broken trust, and I was too prideful to... So like I had, I had no income at that point. I had lost my job. So I was too prideful to put myself in the position of stealing from my family. So I had started counterfeiting money. And at that point I had this like whole operation that was like going on where I would have individuals go in with the counterfeit money and they would buy a bunch of products from certain stores and then they would come out with the products. And then I would take them to go return the products at a different store and they would get real cash back because you pay with cash, they give you cash back. And so, and then I would pay them a little bit and then I would take the rest. So I was like laundering money through all of these businesses and counterfeiting money and like everything kind of just started to spiral. I didn't talk to my family. They didn't talk to me for like two weeks. They thought I was like missing because I was like so ashamed. And that was like right around the time that they had found out that I had relapsed and they were hurt. You know, they, they saw me doing so well and they saw me sober for the first time in years. And then I just completely crushed their hearts and I, I broke their trust and you know, I was ashamed and it was like the most 
depressing place to be in because it's I'm in this toxic relationship we're both using and I need money. And then in 2016, it was on Cinco de Mayo and I got raided by the FBI for counterfeiting money. And I remember, I remember seeing the cars pull up, the black SUVs pull up and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to jail. And my only thought was I need to get high one more time. And then my second thought was this is the white night that you've been waiting for. Like, this is going to suck, but this is what you wanted. And I knew that I was like going to end at some point. And uh, so I got arrested and I got taken to jail. I was in there for 30 days. And at that point, I, that was when my parents had found out was when I had called from the jail. Nobody would answer because it was a it was like a random number and I just kept calling on my family members. And then that was like when it just like kind of hit them and they were like, she's gone. Like she's gone off the rails. And it kind of solidified the fact that like they thought that I was getting high, but now they knew that I was getting high. And so my parents wouldn't bail me out. I was in there for 30 days and I had called one of my friends that I had made when I, when I first went to treatment in 2014 and I was like, you got to help me get out. And she got me released. So not only did I have this like pressure from my family after I relapsed, then I had the pressure from the state of Arizona on me too. So during that time, I was waiting to see if my case was going to go federal or not, or if it was going to stay with the superior court. And I mean, it was like nerve wracking. I didn't know. I knew that the crime that I had committed had caused a lot of harm to a lot of these companies. And they had like every right to press charges on me. And I never knew if it was going to go to federal or not. And I knew that if I went to federal, it was going to be mandatory prison time. So I got released after 30 days. And so I'm like trying to get sober again. I have roughly a month sober. I had been transported and released into the custody of a treatment center. And I had this like pressure to like do everything perfectly because I had these charges hanging over my head and I didn't know whether or not I was going to have to do prison time. So. I felt like there was like a lot of pressure. And at that point, it was hard for me to know whether or not like I was getting sober for myself because I was so scared at that point. Wow. There is a lot I want to break down from all of that. I I want to go back a little bit in your story, though. And I want to understand, do you remember going from opioids to heroin and i don't know if this is the right mentality to have but i think that while the high from heroin and opiates might be similar or whatever i i've i've never done either but i think that taking opioids is less of a risk in our own head because we're like oh it's a pill like People take this pill all the time for whatever reason. So 
it's not that bad. Do you remember how you felt the first time you went from opioids to heroin? Because to me, heroin is just so different because one, it comes in a different form and you have to know how to like work with heroin in order to actually use it. It's not just in a pill form. Do you remember what your mindset was when you made that jump? I have chills right now. I can think of the exact day. Like I can picture it in my head. And my memory is terrible from all of the drug use throughout the years. And it's really hard for me to, to remember details. But I remember that day crystal clear because that was the day that my life just changed forever. So I was terrified of heroin and I never thought that I was ever going to be somebody that did opiates either. I always just thought that I was just going to be this like pothead that drank alcohol and that I was never going to do anything harder than that. And there was nothing that could relate to a high that you have when you are on opiates. And I always like there was always a part of me that did feel a little bit safer doing like the Percocets and the Oxys and all of that stuff because it was like manufactured by these like pharmacies and, you know, it was safe and it had Tylenol in it and all of this stuff, you know, like in my mind, it was like the safer option, but it still has the same effect as and it still had the same effect as heroin did like I still got sick off of it if I didn't do it and I still had the same feeling of like jonesing for it and not being able to stop no matter how hard I tried but I remember the day that I tried heroin and I was like terrified I was super scared of it and at that point like my brother had already been using heroin and I was like so upset with him and disappointed. And I was like, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. And I remember at the time, the, the guy that I was dating, one of his friends came over and he was like, you know, do you guys want to try this? And I was like, no, like, no, no, I don't want to try it. No, thank you. You know, I don't want to be a person that's like known as a heroin addict, you know, and that was like my thought process. Like, I didn't think that the the pills were bad and they were like easier to hide. And then the guy that I was dating at the time, he was like, well, I'll try it. And I was like, I remember this like feeling of complete like rage inside of me. And I was like, how dare you say that you are going to try heroin? And I remember like watching him do it and seeing the feeling that he had just from what I could see. I was like, okay, I guess I'll try it. Like it wasn't, it didn't even take any like peer pressure or convincing or anything. It was just me looking over at him and seeing that he looked completely different than when he would, you know, take a pill as opposed to doing heroin. And I remember that first time and I remember. I remember later in that evening, I was thinking to myself, like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. And and it wasn't, you know, after that was when that guy that I was with at the time, we started selling heroin together and like grew this like empire 
in my head, you know, I just like from the suburbs of Phoenix, it wasn't like I was living in Miami doing this or something. But in my mind, I was like this big kingpin and I was selling heroin and I had gotten my brother involved. And I remember thinking back and just being like, I have to take care of like everyone, you know, like I got to take care of the guy that I'm dating. I have to take care of my brother and his girlfriend. Like, we're just going to be like creating this like big business for ourselves. And it was like this like delusional thinking of wanting to create this like empire, the things that you like see in the movies, you know, they like really fantasize it and play it out. And you think that you can like have that as your reality. And then the reality was crushed when our house was raided. That was what was my motivating factor to seek treatment at that time. Do you remember during this time when I've seen people kind of strung out on drugs, I almost ask myself like, do they even know what day it is? Do they know like, do you feel like in the times when you would get really high, like days would pass and you wouldn't really know it and do you feel like you couldn't really tell the difference between morning and night like i'm curious to know if when you're in it you realize that you're in it if that makes sense so i think that depends on the substance at least for me it depended on the substance so when you're taking drugs that aren't as addictive as heroin so like methamphetamines or Xanax or ecstasy, you do not have any like realization of what day it is or how long you've slept. Or I remember there were a couple times where I would go to sleep on like a Tuesday and I'd wake up and it would be Thursday. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like I just slept through an entire day. Like I'm wasting my life. But it's different with opiates because you wake up and you're like, your first immediate thought is how am I going to get my drugs today? Cause if you don't use, you are sick and you are very sick and you are very uncomfortable and you're full of rage and you just want to get well. So when you're, when you're using opiates, your first initial thought is like, all right, I got to get, I got to get my drugs today. I got to go out there and hustle and figure out how I'm going to get money to be able to get well, because it becomes this like, vicious cycle of like you build up a tolerance you don't get that high and then you have to use even though you really 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 don't want to use and then you feel normal and then it starts like creeping in sooner and sooner so like you would be able to hold off for like you know eight to twelve hours of not having to use any opioids to like feel better and then like it would cut down like your tolerance would build and you would just get like sick and it felt like you were getting sick like quicker and quicker so it was like this constant like panic of i have to have drugs at all times and i need to figure out how to get them so you're definitely aware of like the day and time there's only a short period of time where you are not aware because you're like inebriated from the opiates but other than that, you're just like, pan- you're in a panic mode and you're constantly trying to figure out how you're going to get your next high. Were you terrified the first time that 
you made the decision to start selling heroin? No. I was terrified after my house got raided. That definitely scared me. That was when I was like, I do not want to go to prison. I do not. But I felt like I was invincible at that point when I was selling heroin. And I, in my mind, I had this like great business scheme. And I think the big like eye opener for me was when the house got raided. And I was like, oh crap, like they know what we're doing. And it's only going to be a matter of time before I'm sitting behind bars. And I really just did not want to go to prison. I don't know if this is a good question to ask, but it's one that I'm definitely curious about. Where do heroin deals like take place? Like, do people come to your house or like when I see weird things happening at the QT parking lot, like, is that what I'm seeing or am I making that up? I think everybody's different. I was so worried about getting caught that I was doing mine in like bathrooms if they were female. And then if they were male, it was like inside stores where I would like text them an aisle and tell them. So I never was the person that was like hop in my car in the parking lot. But there are definitely people that do that. And I was just like too stressed out to do that and too like anxious because I knew that people were going to be like watching and then, you know, there's undercover cops everywhere. And it's just like a matter of time before you get caught doing it that way. And you were never worried that these other people would become so desperate that they would try to find you or hurt you in order to get more? No. And I don't know, like, if it was just this, like, feeling of being, like, invincible because I was on drugs or just I didn't have any feelings at all because I was numb. But, like, in my delusional mind, I was a really good drug dealer, you know? I remember, like, one year it was Christmas and I, like, baked a bunch of goods and I wrapped them all up in, like, these Christmas tins and I, every single, like, delivery that I had that night I was like giving them these like homemade goods and stuff like that. So it was like still that, that part of me that was like trying to caretake everyone. So like, I wouldn't let you be sick. I would give you more than what you paid for. And that was like how I built my clientele and stole like customers from other dealers in the area. So I never really had that feeling that my life was in danger. I think that it was just the group of people that I was purchasing the large quantities of heroin from that I was worried about. And how did you ultimately get caught and then raided? Um, so my brother at that time was selling as well. I had brought him in and it had like become this family business, I guess. I don't know. And he was doing the um, drug deals in the parking lot with people jumping in your car and there were undercover cops in the parking lot and it ended with them not being able to charge him. But after, cause they had broken a bunch of like protocols and stuff. And then after that was when our house started like being watched and stuff. And I knew it was coming. I had, 
they had given us plenty of warnings. We had marked cars driving by the house. We had unmarked vehicles sitting down the street. And I kept saying it. I kept saying that it was going to happen. And nobody believed me. So I was at work that day. I was still working. I was still going to school. And I was at work that day. And it was my brother and my boyfriend at the time that were home. And when I came home, I came home to like the mess and they had already taken my brother at that point. And then, um, we got him released to treatment and I was like, okay, well I need to do this with him. And then I went to treatment and a lot of mine was like, I continued, I didn't get caught in the raid, but I continued to sell heroin after my brother got arrested. And I knew that they were like following me. They were still like giving us warnings that it was going to come again and they were going to raid the house again. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to lay low for a little bit. I'm going to go to treatment with my brother. And then like, I kind of just held on to like, give it a year, try sobriety. And if it doesn't work, you can just go back to like what you were doing. If you or someone you know is struggling with drug abuse or drug addiction, I want to give you some resources that can help. These resources were given to me by the woman in today's episode, and they are organizations that she highly recommends. I will also include all of the links I mention in today's show notes. The first is Sonoran Prevention Works. If you're local to me and living in Arizona, SPW provides community workshops and trainings, as well as risk reduction materials to individuals and families to prevent HIV, hepatitis C, and overdoses. You can find them at spwaz.org, or if you want to call their hotline, the number is 480-442-7086. The next resource is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. SAMHSA is the agency within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that leads public health efforts to advance behavioral health of the nation. Their mission is to reduce the impact of substance abuse and mental illness on America's communities. You can visit them at samhsa.gov to learn more. And finally, If you are someone who is currently struggling with drug abuse, another organization she recommends is Never Use Alone. And their site reads, no judgment, no shaming, no preaching, just love. If you're going to use by yourself, call us. You'll be asked for your first name, location, and the number you are calling from. An operator will stay on the line while you use. If you stop responding after using, the operator will notify emergency services of an unresponsive person at your location. You can call them at 800-484-3731 or visit them online at neveruseallone.com. We aren't done with this story yet. There is still more to come. But until then, stay safe, 
and know that people love you, care for you, and are rooting for you. Thank you for being here and listening. I will see all of you next week. Everybody has a secret. <laughs>